Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Friday, April 7th, 2023. Happy Passover and Easter to all of you. Joining me for today's podcast are John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide, Dwight Silverman, the veteran technology journalist for the Houston Chronicle, uh, Stuart Walpin and Rob Pegarero, um, who normally join us is, I think Rob is traveling and Stuart has the tenacity or temerity, but what's the right word, to actually go to a baseball game. I think he's going to the, um, to the Mets. Oh, yeah. yeah, so how, uh, how are you, both of you guys? How's it going? Very good. John, you're up in Vermont, I understand? I am. I just uh, fresh off the press days of the New York Auto Show. So I was doing that in the city and then I've escaped to the country to try and uh, deal with the remnants of the storm, which I'm still dealing with that we had, you know, like a lot of people across the country are dealing with. Dwight, how's the weather been in Houston? My, my favorite uh, uh, city. In- we are uh, enjoying some heavy rain this week. In fact, the, uh, the Space City Weather uh, blog that I help with their app has uh, uh, called for a stage one flood alert, so which is minor. That's the most minor one. So we've got quite a bit of rain here, and uh, but we're supposed to have a pretty nice uh, Easter weekend once the rain moves out. Well, you know, and the weather in San Jose, you know, usually as both of you guys know, you've been out here before. It really has the most beautiful climate of any place I've ever lived. But th- this winter has, you know, they've been very rainy. All of California has been highly rainy, which is actually a good thing in many ways, but. Some, there's been some downsides in other areas, and today is a really weird kind of kind of quasi overcast day, kind of not your typical sunny, no humidity <laughs> type of day. But I'll survive. I'll, I'll survive somehow. It sounds you know. normal to me. Yeah, from San Jose. <laughs> yes, yeah. sounds like your day. <laughs> no, no, Houston. I lo- well, I won't get into a Houston thing, but I love Houston. I know f- some people are not uh, fond of Houston. I thought Houston was great in the ten years that I lived there. That's which I was. I met uh, Dwight. Uh, working for Compaq, but uh, you know, I, I think I, I think Houston is probably the best city in the world. I wouldn't even say America in the world for eating. I think the restaurants. Oh yes, you know, I and you know, and not just for Texas fair, but all kinds of food. And I could have a we could have a separate right now. I could have a separate podcast just on that topic. But let's uh, let's get to this the fun stuff here. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting topic. I can't wait to chat about this. Um, you know, the th- big thing that's been in the news over the last couple of weeks is the tech leaders, including uh, John's best friend, Elon Musk, uh, and and uh, I think Steve Wozniak is on the list. A bunch I of like other people. Yeah, Steve Wozniak is an interesting guy. Uh, they signed this letter asking uh, for the AI tech community to pause on the AI efforts. And so I give them a, an A-plus for aspirational goals. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, but uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to, I got to start off with uh, John because John will, I'm sure will have a very uh, <laughs> right. spirited opinion on this topic. So John, take it away. Well, it's an, it was an interesting proposal. It's an open letter that they uh, published the future Institute and uh, it, it is online for people to look at. It's not a very long letter. Um, and uh it's asked for this pause, as you say, um, a summer break, basically, on a particular kind of 
training that's being done on these much larger language models, like even larger than the ones that people are using now. So that's really what it's aimed at. It's not aimed at, oh, let's start no chat GPT for the whole summer for you guys. Just stop right now. It's not asking for things like that. Um, and Elon is just like a side note. You know, it's signed by computer scientists and researchers and and people in my field in bioethics as well. There are a couple of uh, people involved in that, that that write about um, the ethics of AI and use. Um, you know, when it first came out, I was just thought it was kind of silly. And then a few days went by and I reread the letter again and thought about it again. And now I think it actually does ask for the critical thing, which is the most necessary thing, and that is regulation on its use. It, you know, AI, the real threat about AI is it's stupid. It's not intelligent and it's very stupid. So it makes and does a lot of mistakes now in terms of the judicial system and handing out uh, penalties, insurance claims, jobs, uh, employment. It's used in all these different areas, unbeknownst to most of us out there. Uh, so there's a lack of transparency that we call some of this, those issues. They don't actually ask for any of those things because remember Elon's invested a lot of money in some things like that. And it's not very overt about the regulations because in some places he doesn't want to have regulations about his so-called autonomous driving feature in Tesla's, which is running into the back of vehicles and has you know, contributed to a number of fatalities. So there, there's some hedging in it, but I've sort of modified, I thought it was a silly thing at the beginning, but now that I look at it again, um, you know, there are some real concerns there, but will it move the needle? Will anybody pay attention to this? That's the question. Well, you know, and I, I'd love to get Dwight, your opinion on this, but uh, the thing that I, I think the letter is admirable in many of the ways that you um, expressed, uh, John, I, I, the thing that just confounds me, maybe Dwight, you can address this, the, the one thing I think that the, the government and the, the government has to make this edict, you can't you can't have a t an industry say, hey, we're going to just for uh, humanitarian reasons, pause on something. That's not the way capitalism works. Right. But, but I would think a very simple baseline thing that the industry could do without government regulation, which, you know, because if you wait for them, it's like waiting for Godot. It'll never happen. Why don't there why isn't there some type of, you know, homogeneous effort within the AI community to say, you know what, at the very least, we require people who use our services or tools, and there are very, there's a whole scattering of them, that they have to acknowledge on their websites that the right. content they may see is being derived from AI. You know, whether that's a movie review, whether that's a, you know, I think CNN got into some trouble a few weeks ago with a press release for, a, for financial results, which are very dry to begin with, but apparently they were produced by AI. If there was some level of visibility, you know, on that, that you knew that you might be consuming that content that may was produced by AI, I mean, that's not the perfect answer, but at least it's a step in the right direction. So, Dwight, what, what's your take on that? And give me your, your two cents. Well, AI has been used for the type of thing you describe actually for a long time. The Associated Press has been using uh, artificial intelligence to do earnings reports and... Yes. Um, and, and they have it down kind of to a science, you know, it goes through editors and so forth. It's not, but they were up front when they started doing that. They've been doing that for several years. And I think you're right. I think there needs to be some kind of a um, 
disclaimer on content that is generated that way. One interesting thing about this story is that, and I just tried to find it just now. I couldn't find the, the original. Uh, I couldn't find the this follow-up. But it turns out that several of the people whose names appeared as the signatories on the list said they didn't sign it or that's not what they said or that's not what they were expecting. So, so um, it doesn't have as much weight as, as was originally reported. Although, it, you know, personally, I think it's good to have that conversation. And, and for that reason alone, uh, it was, it was worth promoting. I, I, um, but I kind of agree with, with Bill Gates uh, pausing is impossible at this point. Uh, you know, in fact, um, I heard a discussion on another podcast saying, you know, we don't even know what pausing would look like. You kind of can't do it. Right. And so I think, uh, you know, I think what we have to do is kind of make sure there are guardrails in place. I think the industry needs to agree on those guardrails. Um, what happened with Google, where it kind of was forced into releasing what became barred sooner than they wanted to. I mean, you saw what happened. They imposed such intense guardrails on it that it wasn't nearly as useful or as competitive as chat GPT. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, you know, the, the thing that, uh, you know, just concerns me and I'll just, I was mentioning before we, we got the cameras rolling on the podcast that I was at an HP event um, last week and I, since I'm one of the three on the call here that have, have been out here in the Valley for 17 years, I have never seen anything in my entire technology career, which is pretty long, you know, where something has gotten so much momentum and there's like a gold rush like feeling to it. And what concerns me, honestly, that's I, you know, I'm, you guys have known me for quite a bit of time. I tend to look at the, the, I'm an optimistic person when it comes to the use of technology and all technologies can be used for, bad uh, things what's interesting about ai is in this mad gold rush that's going on right now there are companies trying to figure out how to employ it and they don't really know yet you know and, and i would probably honestly you know hp will probably watch this podcast i'd probably include hp as part of that because it's the buzzword they need to comprehend it in some ways um, I mean, there might be some interesting use of AI in terms of predictive analysis. I've, if I've got a, a, and they are, by the way, doing it already with their office level copiers uh, and printers. I should say, not copiers, but printers, where a uh, the a device can say it knows it's going to fail in four months, so proactively get it serviced. Um, <laughs> maybe, uh, and by the way, that capability has been available in different components on on laptop computers for some time with you know solid state hard drives which knows hey this drive is going to fail you get better get it replaced or back up your information yeah, the smart the smart uh, protocol in, in exactly yeah right but, but that sounds do you know what that why i'm laughing is because what does that sound like how, how? from yeah. when i know yeah. that antenna. it's gonna fail yeah <laughs> right. i'm not going out there <laughs> that was AI, you know, and that's it's so funny because if you watch that extended scene of the movie, which is pivotal in that movie, um, I don't, they, I don't think it was called AI, but it, it was some type of. I think the words predictive and analysis was part of that right, chatter right. from Houston. But I understand that that could. Hey, by the way, you know, um, aircraft have been using that commercial aircraft right. have been using that type of capability for right. years. It's been called AI, but. So I don't know, Dwight. I mean, I have to tell you, I, you know, with um, I just think this, uh, there's such a mad rush to embracing this technology that companies are just 
that are typically wouldn't have an AI play. They're trying to figure out what their AI play is. And, 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 and that always happens. You know, you want to, uh, you know, time immemorial. I mentioned, you know, Bill Gates has said he didn't, th- he doesn't think that, uh, you know, you should do it. But also Microsoft is one of those that has always kind of rushed to what it saw was the gold rush. You know, when, when, when the web became the big thing, Microsoft opened up Sidewalk to try to get into web yeah. content, you know, and then up oh, that wasn't it. I think though, I think the things that don't fit will fall by the wayside. Um, however, you know, I agree with you in that I've never seen anything like this, and I say that from the consumer side because mm. um, you have to remember that there are 10 million people already using chat GPT in just a few months. There clearly is interest and uh, in this. And I hear all the time from people who have used it for a variety of things that are basically harmless. My wife used it looking for some places for us to go to spend $200 airline vouchers we got from Southwest. Right. And it came up with some good ideas and she used, she used that, to kind of go off and make, you know, real decisions. And so I think, I think watching what consumers do, um, uh, the way they use it in kind of the simplest, lowest level things will inform what, what real products become. Yeah. The transparency is an issue. I think that is the biggest problem is that it needs to be flagged um, because it isn't very intelligent and it is, historically made a lot of mistakes and uh, you can just point to the automotive industry the reason you don't have an autonomous vehicle right now is because ai is not very intelligent right it can't solve that problem and it's Mm -hmm. not going to do better at searching through files either Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my experience it's kind of worse so i think it needs to be flagged whenever it's used wherever it's used i was using another podcasting piece of software video conferencing software earlier today and it's already chat gpt was being used in that already i didn't ask for it i didn't click a button i didn't even select a feature it was already being applied so yeah that transparency i think is the critical element Mm -hmm. across the board insurance judicial system teacher rating systems employment histories everything that is applied to there should be a little red button like the black mark on a box of cigarettes that warns you about the health risks should probably be a little red one that says this is being contributed by AI, including places like CNET, whose bank rate story was yeah, right. a compound interest wrong. The most basic fundamental thing that bank rates should be able to get right, it got wrong. And they even now they're trying to hide the fact that they're using it to write articles. Probably not a good idea yeah. for readers out there. Now, there, is, there is there's a uh, the column that I wrote today about rewind.ai, which uh, has been around for a while, it, it records everything on your Mac and then allows you to search it or go through a timeline and see it. Right. They're adding a chat GPT feature that, and I don't have it yet, it's, on, it's in early release, but they're adding a chat GPT feature where it looks at what's on your machine and you can ask it a question to uh, say, I need to send an email to so-and-so summarizing what has happened on this project. It'll look at what you've done on the project and then create the email for you working from the data that is part of um, Rewind. Um, Rewind 
prides itself on uh, privacy and that everything that you do is saved on the machine and doesn't exit, except when you go to use the chat GPT right. feature, which is called Ask Rewind, it sends just enough text to chat GPT to do it. Chat GPT holds on to such submissions of data for 30 days. Rewind is asking for them to waive that and just delete it immediately after the return, after it's sent back. But, you know, there's, there's the camel's nose in that instance. You know, the rewind is very private, but here's kind of a way that some of it leaks out onto the web. Well, yeah, and that chat GPT is not going to delete it because if they had to, if they allowed that, then every app that's using it, they'd have to allow that for, which would be kind of endless. And yeah, kind of they, they have done it for some. They have done it already for some other products, but and, and uh, Rewind wants to uh, get on that list. Well, yeah. we, guys, we could talk about this forever. We got, we got to hit the next topic, but the only yeah. thing I'll, I'll leave you with is that at this <laughs> HP conference, and I won't say what HP executives said, I, it was either one of their uh, keynote, I think it was one of their keynote uh, folks who joined the uh, session, they, they, they mentioned that AI would be great for employee reviews. And, oh. I gotta, and I got to tell you, <laughs> you know, to, to me, because you know, nobody likes to do a, a performance review. And I, I can see the lawsuits flying all over that, that, you know, that uh, an online cloud tool wrote my review. Oh, I mean, kind of well, scary. A, a famous case in Texas where that program fired teachers or, teacher of the year. That's what they did. They fired the teacher of the year. That's what the program did. So, yeah, yeah. probably not a good idea. <laughs> not, a good, not a good idea. But anyway, um, Dwight, uh, you, we were talking uh, before the podcast about T-Mobile and Verizon conducting eSIM-based trials. Uh, eSIM-based trial. Let's talk about, first of all, what an eSIM is for those people who don't know what an eSIM is. So whenever, for, for years, when you have bought uh, a new phone, uh, it comes with a little tiny chip on a card called a SIM, They've gotten smaller and smaller. And uh, one of the benefits of it is, is that if you get a new phone, you can just take the SIM out, put it in the new phone, and, you know, you've got everything. Sim, um, what has happened <clears throat> more recently is that um, uh, it's easy to program a SIM. So when you get a new phone, say an iPhone, you don't need to swap the SIM. They just transfer the number and all of your information from your carrier, <clears throat> excuse me, over to the new SIM. But what uh, has appeared in the past several years since, uh, since at least the iPhone uh, 10 and iPhone 8 was an eSIM, a virtual SIM, a chip inside the phone that essentially serves the same purpose. It's been there for a long time with the latest iPhones there are two eSIMs and there's no physical SIM in the United States. So with the growing number of these eSIMs, uh, T-Mobile first doing it and then Verizon have begun allowing um, trials of their service using eSIMs. T-Mobile's is 90 days. Um, Verizon's is 30 days. And essentially you put an app on your phone, it programs the SIM for that service and you can begin using it. They don't want a credit card. They don't want anything. You just try it. You can go back and forth between your existing service and the trial service. There are some limitations, including, for example, you can't tether anything to it. Um, 
And oh. there are stricter limits, uh, stricter data caps on them than there are if you're just using the paid service. But it does give you a real feel for in the areas where you live and work and play, how well that service will do on your phone. That's interesting. Are there any security ben, uh, down down um, downsides with that? You know, when I when I because when I think of eSIMs, I some or I sometimes wrongly think they could be they could somehow be utilized the wrong way to create burner phones, you know, which have, of course have been around forever. So, is there it, maybe you, uh, th that facilitates that? Maybe it doesn't. So, any take on that, uh, Dwight? Um, no, you know, I have not in the reading I've done, and maybe John knows something about this, but in the reading I've done, uh, I have not seen any reference to that. Um, you know, it's with this particular trial, if you're uncomfortable, you don't like it, you just close out the trial and delete the app and that's it. So right. it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not permanent unless you decide to sign up for it. John, do you know anything about security and eSIM? Um, I haven't. I mean, I know when it was the idea was first proposed years ago that that was a concern with some of these, with the, anything like that, software based. Um, gee, what will happen if you do that? But I haven't seen any security issues demonstrated with it so far. And one of the big pushes behind it is not the phone handset makers. It's the automotive industry. Right. The right now, um, even and I it's funny because I asked a number of companies recently um, because they're looking at 2024, 2025. Will there be an eSIM in the car? Because more of them are now offering like Hyundai uh, saying, you know what? Forget about charging a subscription base for the connect connectivity. It's going to be free. You buy the buy the car, you get it. Um, so with that move. They don't want to in four or five years to say, okay, you no longer have cell service to your car because we can't get into it to replace the stupid SIM that's in it, which has happened in some well-known cases. So um, I think they've less concerned about the security now and more concerned about longevity and future, especially in automotive where people are holding out of cars for almost a dozen years now, uh, like myself, in fact. <laughs> Well, I, I would think, Dwight, that from a from a consumer standpoint, the convenience of this and the ability to go from change different networks and change providers is a lot easier than it is today. So yes. I'm assuming you get the right benefit that a consumer would accrue. Yes. Yes. And and in both these cases, your phone has to be unlocked, which gives you the ability, you know, to move between them. And and you learn a lot about another another carrier. I, I was trying um, Verizon's trial on a Pixel 6 Pro. Pixel 6 Pro supports Verizon's millimeter wave. Um, my sister, when she comes here, has a 4G Samsung phone on Verizon and she always complains when she's here that in my house she can't doesn't have much of a signal. And I saw the same thing in the house. When I stepped out on my balcony where I can look up and see uh, at the end of the street a millimeter wave tower from Verizon, I went from getting like 30 megabits down, if that, mm. to getting outside and getting more than two gigabits down just because right. millimeter wave can't pass through right. object. Right. So you get, it gives you a real feel for kind of what I would be like if I wanted to switch to Verizon, what that experience would be like. And that's, that's really valuable. No, I, I can tell you, I was in New York a few weeks ago and I, I've been an AT&T guy forever. 
and have uh, a um, uh, iPhone 14 in Manhattan trying to use um, the map feature to, 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 to walk to different places. <laughs> and, it, and I can tell you, it, it, the service was awful. I yeah. wish I had the ability to change it to do it to to take advantage of exactly the um, the scenario that you just described. So uh, well, you can you just download either the T-Mobile or the Verizon app and and give it a shot, and you could do it standing there on the street. You know, assuming yeah. you have enough uh, you have enough of a signal to download the app. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's uh, but you can do it, and it's you know it's it, they make it very seamless. I got to check it out. I got to check it out here. Yeah. Well, you know, John, you brought up the issue of um, of batteries exploding with respect to e-bikes. I actually read a few articles recently about that, and uh, that is an issue. So let's yeah. talk about that. Why and should we really be that concerned, or are these just kind of one-off type of situations? I think there is some concern here. And now credit where credit is due. So Bosch, which makes uh, a lot of the systems, the motors and the batteries and major components that go into these e-bikes, and they've got a lot of experience. They've been doing it for years. So I've been testing their bikes for, you know, six years or so. Um, they are, you know, a big proponent of this and are concerned about it because uh, a lot of batteries are either abused, um, you know, or they're used with the wrong chargers or they're coming in from countries, goodness knows where, and don't meet certain standards. Right. And so they have been catching fire, not exploding, but they overheat and catch fire. And the fires, as people have known, have watched YouTube videos of Teslas catching, going up in flames <laughs> on the highway, are intense, very difficult to put out, high temperature and fast, rapid fires. Well, in New York City, there was something like 40 fires in uh, 2021 or 2020. And last year, there were 220 of these fires uh, and a number of fatalities. And we're already exceeding that rate this year. Um, High-rise buildings, there's a, a unit near me that has over 600 apartments in it. It banned e-bikes. So no one in that building is allowed to bring one in, store it in the basement, uh, park one. You know, I guess the delivery people leave them outside because they all use e-bikes. But um, that's how afraid people are of these. So it's definitely a concern. And the New York City has uh, launched a new program. Uh, part of it is public education. A part of it is to look at imposing some kind of regulations, because right now in the United States, like some other areas in the United States, there's zero regulation. Nothing. Well, you know, but you know, what's interesting about the e-bike category. There's hundreds and hundreds of players. Many of the players are overseas. To your point, they don't utilize the same type of um, qualification that maybe some of the more established companies do. I mean, Bosch has been around a long time, but right. but. But there are battery suppliers in uh, in Asia that are a bit unscrupulous, and they will not apply the same type of standards. And what advice would you give to people? You know, I mean, should they should they make uh, the the whoever they're buying the e bike from the the buyer supply the battery supplier should that be a criteria for for, for purchase? It, not necessarily. I mean, I talked to a company from Turkey that principal um, is based in Turkey. They meet all the regulations. They're very much concerned about these issues, A, because it, it sort of paints everybody with the same brush. Right. If you do that and buildings like this one in New York City ban e-bikes, that kills the market. You can't sell e-bikes. You can't sell batteries. Nobody wants that to happen. Um, there is a UL standard in the United States, but it's a voluntary uh, certification that the company has to go through. So that would be the very first thing as a consumer 
to look for that UL certification on the e-bike. Um, and that should be pretty prominent and easy to find. Obviously, Samsung, Bosch, um, Vestal, some of these other companies are reputable companies, but you may not know who actually makes the components for the bicycle. It may not be obvious. There are some bike shops. Uh, there's one in Austin, Texas that I visited. They will only now sell bikes that use one or other of a Bosch system, mainly because of the hassle of repairs that they found with other systems, but also this issue of, look, they have a whole store full of e-bikes and lithium-ion batteries, so they don't want to have any issues as well. But it, mainly um, the other notion for consumers is don't use another transformer. I mean, some of them are compatible with the plug. You can plug in a USB port or something else. I label them because I test these bikes all the time. And you know what I do because they're all black and they all have like similar components. I actually take a piece of tape and label them all because yeah. you don't want to mix and match with these things. That's how you can overheat the battery. And the other thing is if the battery gets damaged or it's, end of life you just have to get rid of it and get a new one a lot of these fires would be created by people who are trying to mess and open them with the batteries and charge them with different chargers etc no, no i mean dwight john makes a good point because you could apply that same logic to notebook power supplies right. and, and, and and you know consumers who are not ter terribly sophisticated their idea of compatibility is that if a cord plugs into a hole right. oh it must work and right and, you know, and, and, and the batteries that are, are in a um, uh, the batteries that are in a, um, a e-bike, they're pretty substantial batteries because they have to power a motor. So these are not tiny, tiny batteries where the fire would be small, you know, um, but Dwight, what's your take on this? <laughs> well, in the in in the earlier days of laptops, you used to be able to just easily replace the battery. in the Right. You uh, essentially throw a toggle and pull the battery out, and put a new one in. And there quickly became a market for low-cost, uh, often Chinese-made batteries um, that were much less expensive than the ones that were sold by the OEMs. But you, but you know, a lot of people quickly learned that if you put it in, if you use it, it won't last as long. A lot in a lot of cases, they would swell and damage yeah. your laptop. And, um, and this is one of the reasons why companies like Apple uh, move to, uh, you know, batteries that are sealed inside. They don't, you know, they, they ran into issues with, with these, bad, these cheap batteries causing problems with the product. So, um, yeah, I think, I, you know, looking for that UL sticker is a great idea. I'm, I'm curious, John, if there is something about the use of the battery on the motor that would that stresses the battery more than say it would in just any other use um not so much i mean it, it depends on the software though and in particular bikes like i i've tested everything from you know specialized and gazelle at the high end of these e-bikes down to you know rad power and juiced some of these newcomers but but they have done an excellent job in terms of managing the life of their batteries they don't want returns either so in the most part like an, a, an ev you know you can't get below 10 percent because they don't want to drain the battery too low and when you charge them once you get to that top 20 percent, everything slows down to trickle charge the last not to overheat the battery so there there's nothing in terms of the stress level it's when people do things like through the software hack into the system and I don't know about in Houston, but in New York City, these e-bikes are going over 30 miles an hour because what they've done is they've hacked the system 
and made them, you know, go 10, 10 miles an hour faster. And in that case, all bets are off. Once you start doing things like that, then yes, you could be uh, doing some damage and shortening the life of that battery. And then they take it to somebody in an apartment who says, oh, I'm going to fix it. I'll fix your battery. And that's where you get these fires right. to start. So, but, you, but you know what bothers me about this? I have a rad power bike. I've uh, had it for three or four years. It's a very good bike. Yeah. Yet it, but at least the model that I have is not connected in any way. I know there's firmware and software that, that is that is managing the battery. And yeah. for all I know, there's been a software update to the firmware that manages that battery. I don't I, I have to go look at the instruction manual, but I'm not sure there's a way for me to update the firmware because it's a it's it's a non-connected um, e-bike. And to the point that you just made, Dwight, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the door swings both ways when you see companies like Apple and others, because people have been following Apple's uh, lead and that they design a battery that you can't, that the user can't replace. Apple will claim, well, the reason why we do this is that we want to make sure that it's only an Apple component. We can manage the quality, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, even the best lithium ion batteries out there degrade over a period of time. And this, and Apple, by the way, if you've ever tried to replace your battery on a MacBook Pro and you don't have Apple Care, it's not an inexpensive upgrade, you know. So that, <laughs> so, and I don't consider that an upgrade, by the way. That would be like me replacing my tires yeah. on my car. I can right. only go to one source, and the tires are three X what they would normally be with other cars. So, I, I, you know, there, there has to be a balance between managing quality. And also being reasonable from a price upgrade standpoint when you have to upgrade that, that battery component. Because most consumers, if they hold on to their laptop for three or four years, are going to have to replace their battery at some point. Dwight, thoughts well, on that? Well, I think, um, you know, I, one of the things about it is that um, as someone who actually has had one of those incredibly uh, expanding batteries in their, <laughs> in their 2005 MacBook um, the black MacBook that was sexy. Um, I have, uh, you know, I, I can attest that that does indeed happen. Yeah, Apple, you know, sees it a, as a profit center, but yeah. the bottom line is people were doing that and it was causing damage to notebooks and not just Apple notebooks. Right. So, um, you know, while, while, yeah, you could assume that there's a profit motive there, there also is a safety motive. Right. Great. Yeah. Well, it's surprising that the members that do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I get that. I, and the one thing I did learn on this call that people are hacking their uh, their their e bikes so they can go faster. I did not know that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I I can. It's like video games. When I review a video game, they give me cheat codes because otherwise I'd never yeah, get yeah. to the end of the game. Um, there are usually cheat codes for a lot of these bikes. And I will test them at 28 miles an hour, which they're not supposed to go. You know, you have to be off road. Right. <laughs> say you're going off road and there are ways to switch them. And then people tweak them further. So, yeah, they get pretty dangerous. Crazy stuff. Well, anyway, take us home, Dwight. We talked about Rewind AI. I have actually played with it and used it. Um, it's a bit of an interesting, it's an interesting utility. And I, I, I my big concern is how much storage it consumes. Um, I only used it for about two weeks and I didn't see any serious you know, my hard drive didn't go to my, my storage didn't go to zero, thankfully, after using it for a couple of weeks. So that was good because it's got some algorithms. Apparently, there it's able to compress the, uh, the, the content. But explain to people what it, it, it strategically its intent is. What is it intended for? From a user's well, it's it is they, they describe it. And this is kind of 
you know, pretty marketing words, but they describe it as the search engine for your life. And <laughs> the idea is that uh, certainly for people who are professionals and people who live on their laptops as say opposed to their phone, you know, everything passes through through your machine. And this records everything that happens. It uses screen recording, audio recording, and it has technology, for example, that creates a transcript of everything that is heard as audio or seen as video. So you get a transcript of everything. That then becomes searchable. And so when you invoke it, after you're trying to find something, it brings up both a search field and a timeline at the bottom of the screen. And, along, and if you scroll along the timeline, you see little icons representing the apps you've been using you know, during that time period. You click on the app and it brings it up and you see what was in the app. It's kind of like taking Time Machine, which yes. is uh, you know, Apple's time-based backup program, and bringing it forward. It's kind of a lot like that. My um, feeling about it is when I first tried it, I was real nervous about having everything recorded on my uh, <laughs> MacBook Pro, but it, but you know, they insist it doesn't leave your machine. And to kind of prove it, they on their site they have a link to a, a, a Mac app called Little Snitch that sniffs the packets that are going out from your machine. And indeed, when you run it, you don't see anything happening from um, from Rewind. There's there's one exception. And that is, it does go out to check for um, uh, updates and then we'll download the updates. It also sends some um, analytics back to them for product development, which is pretty standard in most software, uh, connected software. But the, the data stays on your machine, except in that chat GPT feature, which is called Ask Rewind. That is currently, uh, you have to get on a wait list. I'm not, I haven't been given access to it. So they're being very limited with it. And I would assume you wouldn't, if you don't use it, you're not going to send anything out to uh, chat to GPT. Yeah. So, um, so it's a, I kind of have gotten over my, um, my nervousness about it. It could be expensive. Um, there's a free version that gives you 50 rewinds, which are, uh, you know, essentially looking back and then it stops working. There are, um, and then there's a basic tier that's ten to twelve dollars a month, depending on how you pay for it, and then a pro tier that's thirty to thirty-six dollars a month, depending mm -hmm. on how you pay for it, monthly or annually. Um, and the I, I have settled back into the basic tier, which is ten rewinds a month, and that's about right. That's about tends to be how I how I used it. It has it has proven really useful. As the example I give in the column that's online today is I was in uh, Frisco, Texas at the Texas Pinball Festival. And I was looking for healthy breakfast options. And I had stumbled across something in a search and didn't pay attention to it the day before. And I thought, what was that? And so I started using Rewind to find it. And I did. It was a place called the Aussie Grind, which has a great Canberra omelet. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Uh, and and yeah, I found it faster than if I had been trying to look through my search uh, history because I didn't remember the name. So uh, it, it, it works very well for things like that. Um, I, I'll be very curious to see how the, um, 
the open AI chat GPT feature works once they bring it forward. But um, for now, I'm going to keep it on my machine and I've kind of gotten over the, the, um, uh, the privacy issue. Even, even the CEO, when I interviewed him, I asked him, you know, this seems like it should be in the operating system. Are you worried about getting Sherlocked by Apple? And he said, no, he said he thought his software was, quote, too weird and creepy, close quote, for Apple, because, you know, they would be nervous about kind of, you know, this much stuff being captured. But on the other hand, Apple has Sherlocked a lot of other companies that are like, this. yeah, yeah, and I, I think this should be in, by the way, they're working on a Windows version. Um, and I think this should be, this is like, this should be in every operating system. Yeah, no, it sounds like a very convenient feature. You, you haven't had any issues from it, you know, consuming your hard drive, your storage? No, in fact, I'm on the machine right now um, that, I, that I have it on. I have it turned off at the moment because I, I didn't want to record this. But, and you could go in and say, I don't want to look at this. So like I've got it turned off for one password, for example. Right. So it doesn't record that. But, um, but uh, I have... I'm only using 12% on this machine of a one terabyte hard drive soft or SSD. And when I put it on there, I think I had about 11% used. So oh, really? it, it, yeah, it, it compresses at like over 1300%. I mean, it's got like one 1300 times compression uh, as I understand it. So it compresses a lot. You know, I, I have not noticed it at all. And as I, as I said earlier, when we were talking before, the only time I have ever seen it, um, the only time I've ever seen it where I know it's on my machine is when I was doing my Zoom interview with the CEO of Rewind. Um, right. And I was allowing it to capture then. Um, the, uh, that his company makes a uh, transcription product called Scribe that you may have heard of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's included in this, and that's what does the transcript from video right, right. and audio. Well, John, is this, is, is this a utility that you? It sounds like it's, if you're a journalist or any, or even, uh, I mean, there's a lot of usage models you could apply this to. Um, right. And and you know, like Dwight, you know, there's sometimes you you have a brain spasm. I can't remember. I you know, three days ago, yes, I did search on something. I forgot to write it down. That's the uh, the transcription capability and the searchable feature sound is wonderful but john is this something that you would use because you're obviously a, a, a professional journalist i mean yeah i think any reporter would uh want to do this you know sometimes i'm like i've talked to this neuroscientist his name is eric it was six months ago and now i want to use the interview that i did six months ago and i don't know where it is and i don't remember eric's last name you know and i don't remember was it Rockefeller University was at or was it NYU? You know, it's just that kind of thing that that you, you with all this volumes of information it would be great. I want to know, though, Dwight, what was wrong with us? You didn't want to record us. We weren't important enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, you know, I, I am I'm selective about what I what I turn it on with. And and uh, I'll say how some of the sausage is made here. But but uh, Mark is Mark's program that he has to use to do this records the the video onto each of our machines right. so yours is recording yours mine's recording mine and i didn't want to have double recording going on so i left it on 
Right. No, well, I was just kidding about us. But but the other thing is, you know, there's this is all great. It's sort of like the, the generative um, AI work that's being done and everything. But there is one place where it doesn't apply at all. And that's IRL. It's in real life. Like what I need is when I'm at the Philosophical Association meeting and I see Fred and I don't remember anything about him, but I know I've met him before and I want to be prompted. Fred that, that's what face recognition That feature is coming soon. <laughs> there'll, there'll be a version of Rewind AI for some type of VR, AR application. So that's what I need. That's what I need. You'll, you'll see that soon. But hey, guys, I think that's enough um, for today's podcast. Uh, guys, really, thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please make sure the Smart Tech Check podcast is part of your day or commute. Let me bring up some wonderful QR codes that you guys can check out. Uh, please use these uh, codes to subscribe on my Twitter and uh, LinkedIn pages and follow me on Twitter at Mark Guy. And until next time, have a great week. Mm -hmm.